0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, the pristine wilderness depicted in the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings novel The Yearling was an active community center for prehistoric people. There
1: was shell works and earthworks all around. There was smoke from fires going up all over, just a, a, you know, a real flurry of activity. It truly was, at 4,000 years
2: ago
0: compared to today, a metropolis. We'll discuss the history of the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute and visit Silver Springs near Ocala.
2: They would go along the Oklawaha, which is dark waters, and the mosquitoes and the brush was very dense then they would get to Silver Springs and when they would describe it as this journey from darkness to light.
0: That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers.
2: Lake George, Florida.
3: April 1878. I came across this lake once, some years ago, in a little mail boat that brought me home after fighting in the war with the Yankees. Came down this broad river going back
0: into the wilderness,
3: away from civilization, looking for a place to settle a place to live back into the script country.
0: That's Gregory Peck Peck in the 1946 film adaptation of the 1938 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Yearling by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Silver Glen Run was the isolated, natural setting of The Yearling, but thousands of years ago, the area was a bustling center of activity for prehistoric people. Ken Sassaman is an archaeologist at the University of Florida. He's investigating Silver Glen Run, an area that was explored more than a century ago by early Florida archaeologist C.B. Moore. Sure he did. Yeah, he was up and down
1: the coast, but he also went into the St. Johns River Valley looking for the mounds and largely looking for mounds that contain antiquities. That's what he was after. So the shell mounds that we work on uh, weren't terribly rich for him. He dug into them. Uh, he was often disappointed. He would report that he demolished these mounds with little effort uh, and found very little in return. So, uh, fortunately, because he, he didn't succeed in getting artifacts out of a lot of the shell mounds, there's still large remnants of those left behind. Um, but yeah, he was, he was all over the southeastern United States.
0: C.B. Moore went up and down the St. Johns River in his steamboat, the Gopher. Modern archaeologists are often appalled by Moore's methodology, but find his meticulous documentation to be very helpful.
1: Yeah, his his method was to get to the core of these deposits where he sus- suspected that there would typically be uh, tombs, mortuary features that would contain antiquities. So he often trenched or tunneled into them. And, um you know, we could we could criticize that. It certainly uh, isn't the way we approach it today. We're more exacting, and we use you know a lot of methods that enable us to maintain the context and association of everything that we find. But he did uh, report his work. He published um, very very often uh, quickly uh, out of the field. A lot of illustrations, not so many maps and not so many profiles. But um, unlike a lot of his contemporaries, he was pretty good about reporting his stuff.
0: C.B. Moore and other early archaeologists in the late 1800s and early 1900s were among the first to explore the huge burial mounds of Silver Glen Run. The mounds were constructed in U-shapes that formed ceremonial centers the size of modern football stadiums. Ken Sassaman.
1: The fellows in the 19th century that saw him for the first time, and even into into the 18th century, the Bartrams um, themselves saw these things. They entered a world that uh, was unfamiliar to them. And I think for the, certainly for the 18th century, 19th century explorers that saw them for the first time, they had very little frame of reference for these things. But what they were seeing basically was a world that had been shaped by the deposition of shell and earth into ridges and mounds and amphitheaters. Often they used that term to describe these U-shaped constructions. And I think you know it's, it's fair to say that what we, what we have in Florida is a vast landscape of terraforming that Native American peoples had shaped the earth in ways that may often have had practical utility, windbreaks, uh, barriers to water, uh, rising waters and so forth. But we think that given um, the consistent representation of these things in form across vast areas of, of the state, that there was cosmological motives behind this as well. That they were representing themselves that we do as modern people in commemorating events or belief systems and, um, and they, they did it often at scales that were just simply mind-boggling. It would take many hundreds of people, many, many you know, uh, days and weeks to construct these things. They had no heavy equipment. Uh, they certainly didn't have enforced labor so these people were operating under uh, some sense of common will and belief. Um, it's, it's pretty tremendous, and unfortunately so much of it was destroyed in the early part of the 20th century for construction. A lot of the roads in Volusia County beneath the pavement are, are lined with shell.
0: The content of these large mounds indicate that their purpose evolved over time. Ken Sassaman believes that what was once the site of a thriving community later became a place of ritual ceremony sudden and extreme changes to the environment of the area probably led to people using the land differently.
1: Yeah, this has been one of the most fascinating results of our work is to show that mounds weren't uh, simply haphazard or random accumulations. When we look at these things in profile, which is to say that we cut a section through them, and we look at how they accumulated from the beginning to the very end, we see these layers much like a layer cake, archaeologists call this stratigraphy in which we see pretty abrupt and dramatic changes in the way that the, the shell accumulated. So for instance, the oldest one that we've worked on at the south end of Hantun Island has a typical living surface at the base on which um, you know, we have ash and artifacts and, and other human remains of dom- domestic living, everyday living. And on top of that they deposited a very thick and expansive layer of shell, clean shell, that you know very well could have been the remains of food, but it's not associated with anything else. We regard it as what we call a capping event. They, they laid a bunch of shell on top of a former place of residence. Coincidence, we believe, with a time when the local environment took a, a turn south. It was no longer inhabitable. The river that was running along the side of the site may have changed course. We think it changed course. And then thereafter, for the next few centuries they came back repeatedly and laid down thin layers of alternating light and dark shell, the dark shell being from burning, and they did this repeatedly for at least 16 maybe as many as 25 times on perhaps an annual basis or a semi-annual basis and our best reading on that, given what we know about it, is that it was a commemorative event uh, perhaps acknowledging through the same sort of practices that uh, that initiated the abandonment in the first place their previous history their previous occupation there and ultimately it was a means of reconstituting communities that had found themselves you know disrupted by environmental change they're coming back to their place of origin but they have you know hence distributed themselves differently across the landscape so i think it's an important uh point that the shell mounds are more than simply just the, uh, the remnants or the refuse of, of, of former living, it was a way of moving forward and reconstituting community on a regular basis.
0: Florida experienced significant geographical changes while prehistoric people were living here, The peninsula that is now Florida was once much larger, with land extending far into the Gulf of Mexico.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of dramatic change, especially between uh, the time people entered North America and Florida after 14,000 years ago until about 5,000 years ago. The rate of change was um, sufficiently great that you would notice it in your lifetime. And by that, I mean to say that if you're living on the coast or you're living along the shore of a river, a creek or whatnot, uh, by the time you're an adult, you would um, perhaps have seen it inundated, flooded, or in the case of the river, the river switching its course because of flooding and so forth. So it, it's it's pretty interesting actually to compare the coast with the river. In the coastal situation, uh, there may have been long stretches of time, hundreds of years, where the change was uh, constant and it was, it was directional. It was always encroaching. The water was coming up and it was moving in. And that would have been something that would have uh, engendered Culturally in these people's minds, a sense of regularity, a sense of of predictability, and they probably adjusted for it. In fact, I think that people living 8,000 years ago were far better equipped to anticipate long-term futures than we are. Now, contrast that with the river. The river system of the St. John's is um, unchannelized the way that the Mississippi or the Tennessee River is. It's a more of a braided system that has a lot of different you know, side channels that come and go. Things dip down into sinks, they come back up, they go into the lagoons, they disappear here and there. So that, that environment, uh, despite the fact that it may have been constant change, wasn't directional change. and It wasn't change that anyone could predict short of having an advanced degree in geomorphology. So, so I think that you know, living on the St. John's was particularly challenging. And instead of seeing people responding, uh, as coastal peoples did, by simply moving further and further inland as the water came up, they would have to shift dramatically from location to location, perhaps going from the southern part of the river system to the northern part, coming back to the middle part, moving back to the far northern region, and so forth.
0: Many of Florida's huge burial mounds have been lost to environmental changes as well as modern construction, but there are still many left to explore. Archaeologists today have new tools such as LIDAR to aid their investigations. LIDAR is light detection and ranging that uses laser light technology to penetrate Florida's untouched ancient prehistoric mounds.
1: So what it does is it gives us complete coverage of topography at an incredibly high resolution. And what it shows is that we have anthropogenic, we have human-built shell works in places that are fully inaccessible today. You can't get to them by boat. You can't even walk to them. You have to drop in by helicopter in some of these places. Deep in, deep in the swamps and in the backwater environments of the St. John's are shell mounds that were left untouched because they were inaccessible to modern people for mining. They've no, they haven't been looted. They haven't been dug into at all. We don't know how many, but we're, we're starting to see them in LIDAR coverage pop up in various places, particularly around the middle part of the river valley between Deland and Lake George. Uh, Certainly several dozen of them we've seen on on LIDAR maps. So the future of Florida archaeology is assured. uh, It's going to take a lot of logistical will to get into these places. Um, Your average graduate student or undergraduate student isn't going to be able to get back in there.
0: But it will take funding. It will take a lot of resolve. But it's there, and hopefully it will be there for generations to come. At the time of the first European contact in Florida 500 years ago, the Tamuqua tribe occupied the land around the prehistoric community centers at Silver Glen Run. In the early 20th century, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings depicted the land that had once been bustling with activity as remote and isolated. Ken Sassaman. The reason I,
1: I started thinking about Marjorie uh, Kinnan Rawlings and the yearling was actually the very first year we worked at Silver Glen Run, when the mantelpiece of the juniper club is the skull of a bear inscribed "Slewfoot," and, and so, you know, the the, uh, the antagonist of the film, right? Or the, the book, excuse me. Um, and so, uh, and then, uh, you know, I hadn't read it to that point, I'm ashamed to say. I'm a northern. I come down to Florida for the first time in 98. But I did read it and I watched the movie too. And the the, the image of, of the springs and the environment around the springs, of course, is one of of a pristine wilderness untouched by industry and, and and human ingenuity that it's still, you know, sort of like God's creation and it's just perfect. And certainly there's dangers. There's bears and there's snakes and things like that. But that opening scene where, you know, the, the boy is so comfortable in this place that he can fall asleep by the side of the spring and all his animal friends come scurrying by and so forth. Contrast that with four thousand years ago, the place was teeming with people. There was earth there was shell works and earthworks all around. There was smoke from fires going up all over, just a, a you know, a real flurry of activity. It truly was at four thousand years ago compared to today, a metropolis.
0: Ken Sassaman is an archaeologist at the University of Florida who is exploring the prehistoric burial mounds at Silver Glen Run which is also the be setting be for the Marjorie Kinnan the Rawlings' novel, The Yearling.
3: It got wilder as I got deeper into the woods. I liked it. Vegetation was denser, the trees had to struggle for a breath of air. Even wilder here as I got back closer to the sources, to the beginning of things, further away from towns and wars. And then I left the river, went right into the woods themselves. Here was the scrub country. Not many people lived here then, just a few pioneers. I found myself a wonderful wife in a little village nearby. And between us, out of this rolling sea of trees, we cleared and cultivated a little piece of half-fertile ground we call islands. Like this one. That was many years ago, but we still live here. We've had our hardships and our happinesses. This is our home. Baxter's Island. That's my name, Penny Baxter. Here's where we live. Me, my wife, Ori, and our little
0: boy, Jody. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. To receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report, become a member of the Florida Historical Society. Just go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. Your membership helps to support all of our great educational outreach throughout the state. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer
4: Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore. Beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. There
5: are two things that most people think they know about Juan Ponce de Leon, or Ponce de Leon as we commonly say. The first is that in 1513 he was the first European voyager to discover Florida. The second is that he was hunting a fountain of youth. To the first notion, we can say that Spanish slaving ships probably encountered Florida before Juan Ponce did. To the second, we can say that the authorizing charter granted him by Spanish King Fernando II made no mention of a fountain of youth. Historians today think that fountain was really only a myth. What Juan Ponce stumbled upon was a huge peninsula, which he thought was an island. He gave it the name La Florida, the flowery land. And Florida is what we call it still today.
4: University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating
0: 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould talks with Marilyn Link about the establishment of the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute.
6: Edwin Link was an aviation pioneer known by generations of pilots and astronauts for his flight simulators. Later, Link turned his attention to the oceans. He started developing a little sub that would explore the great depths of the seas. He and his wife, Marion, lived on a boat that often docked in Miami or Palm Beach. By the late 1960s, he was in the market for a permanent harbor. It was the time of the Apollo moon missions.
7: He thought if they can send a man to the moon, we can certainly get man to the bottom of the sea.
6: Marilyn Link of Vero Beach is the sister of Edwin Link, who died in 1981. He found some property on the Indian River north of Fort Pierce. Two Fort Pierce men had a mining business there.
7: They were mining sand to take to the Bahamas for construction. By 1969, that had stopped. So the channel was there and one of the partners wanted to sell out. So Ed thought it was a perfect solution for him since there were three or four hundred acres of land available and a ready-made channel for his ship.
6: Marilyn Link, a pilot, was living in New York. She flew down to Fort Pierce to pick up her brother and sister-in-law and fly them back to New York.
7: And when I arrived and flew over this channel, I could not imagine what Ed and Marion were doing here. This place was mosquitoes and ants and sand and no foliage at all. I thought it was the Sahara Desert. I had no vision of to what it would ever become.
6: What time of year was it?
7: It was in the summer, July.
6: Oh, boy. <laughs> when she went back to New York, she expected to come to Harbor Branch only for visits.
7: Everything here was going well, and by that time, Seward Johnson had decided to bring his boat up where Ed was, so I could see that Seward and Ed were looking towards developing the Woods Hole of the South.
6: Johnson and Link teamed up and opened Harbor Branch in
7: 1971. About 1973, Seward Sr. and Ed were having some trouble managing all of this, and The managers they had wanted to do it the way they wanted to do it and Seward and Ed were pretty strong characters and they didn't expect these managers to be telling them what to do, especially when it was their money.
6: So one day Marilyn got a call from Seward Johnson. He asked her to come down and work as managing director.
7: So I came in September, thought I'd stay four months. That was what year? That was in 1973. I never thought I would make it the first few years, but surprisingly enough, I guess I grew with the community.
6: It hasn't always been smooth sailing at Harbor Branch. The hurricanes of 2004 caused damage in the millions.
7: And also after Seward Johnson Jr. became, I'd say, more interested in other ventures that he was involved in and left, they did get into some financial problems. So beginning about '06, they had to be looking around as what they wanted to do from there. And I am glad that the state came in, Florida Atlantic University came in, and gave them the opportunity so that Harbor Branch could become part of Florida Atlantic University.
0: Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Silver Springs, near Ocala, is one of Florida's largest natural springs and claims to be the state's first tourist attraction. Bill Dudley reports on how the history of Silver Springs reflects the story of Florida's tourist industry. See the
5: dark? Welcome to Florida Silver Springs, world-famous glass-bottom boat. My name is Oscar Vivo
4: not long after the Civil War, when other American natural wonders like the Grand Canyon were being explored, the great artesian spring at the headwaters of the Silver River near present-day Ocala was already becoming a tourist destination. In the late 19th century, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and William Jennings Bryan traveled down the Oklawaha River to view the springs from the deck of a steamboat.
2: They would go along the Ocklawaha which is dark waters, and the mosquitoes and the brush was very dense. Then they would get to Silver Springs, and when they would describe it as this journey from darkness to light. You had the dark waters, the thick branches, and then at the head of the spring, it really does open up. But also then the water turns crystal clear.
4: University of South Florida Ph.D. student Wendy Adams-King has been studying the way Silver Springs has evolved over the last 140 years.
2: Because it emerged at the end of the 19th century, and continues today. It's an important site to look at to think about how American culture is changing during this time period.
4: The first glass-bottom boat was a large duckout canoe fitted with a long, thin window. The year was 1873. By the 1930s, electrically operated boats were taking tourists up and down the river. By the 1950s, the park was hosting nearly a million visitors a year. Although the boats themselves were captained by African-American men who had grown up in the area, Silver Springs was off-limits to blacks until 1949, when one enterprising captain, Eddie Vereen, convinced the owners to set up a section of the grounds for an African-American beach. Paradise Park became an immediate success.
7: The black was on the back, and that's the way we went. And the glass-bottom boat will come on the black side. And we would ride the glass bottom boat and go all over the water.
4: Ocala resident Willie Bell Cannon remembers visiting the park in the late 1950s.
7: And when we got on the glass bottom boat and rode, you talking about beautiful, it was a paradise. And we used to see the monkeys and the alligators and the, all types of birds. We used to see all of that and the fishes under the water.
8: If you go down the river, straight down the Silver River, it was about a mile down on the right-hand side, on the south side of the river. There's nothing there now. Just a a big pasture.
4: Leon Cheatham grew up on the river and came to work at Silver Springs in the 1950s. Paradise Park was closed in the late 1960s, around the time Walt Disney World opened, changing the face of Florida's tourist industry. One result of the Disney influence? Natural wonders like Silver Springs that once emphasized local culture and local mythology now seek tie-ins with mass media, especially Hollywood.
8: All the movies and TV shows have been filmed out here over the years. Six Tarzan major motion pictures filmed here in the 30s and 40s with Johnny Muller, Marino O'Sullivan, and of course Cheetah the...
9: Ch- I think that people are always looking for something that's going to certify their experience something that's going to put a stamp on it that says this is bigger, this is why this is relevant. And and today, of course, it's it's the media that does that.
4: Mark Newman is Associate Professor of Communications at USF and the author of a book on tourism and the Grand Canyon.
9: It's such a cliche now to even quote Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame that everybody's going to get, but what that phrase recognized was the significance that the media has in making an event meaningful to a large number of people that this movie was made here or this television program was shot here. It gives them a reason other than nature. It connects with their lives in some way.
4: But as giant parks like Disney World and Bush Gardens have eclipsed smaller attractions like Silver Springs, they've also profoundly affected the way many visitors see these natural places.
8: We see quite a few alligators still, and they want to go up and set their child on the gator's back or go up there and stroke the gator, you know, and... Uh, you don't do that with the real alligators, you know, and you take, try to explain this to them. And, uh, well, they've seen so many fake, you know, till they just don't realize it. A good sunny day, you can take a trip down the river. You probably see 15 turtles land in one log, all different kinds of turtles, too, you know. They don't think they're real. They think you take them in and out at night. Or you mash a button on the boat and the turtle slides off the log. And this don't have it. <laughs> they're real.
9: <laughs> when it comes to, like, areas of natural wonder, quite honestly, most people get bored. The average stay at a place like Grand Canyon National Park is about four hours. I mean, it's a huge place, and it's not a place that's easy to get to no matter where you start from. For many people, the the virtues of nature and scenery are not self evident spectacles in their own right.
4: Although in the last few decades, Silver Springs has transformed itself into a kind of theme park with a jungle safari, country music concerts, rides and slides, and even an antique car museum, old-timers like Leon Cheatham still believe the wonder of natural Florida is what brings people back.
8: We haven't changed the river. The water is the same. Our boat ride is the same. And we try to keep it as natural as possible. That's what everybody seems to like the regal
4: thing. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, please visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Like our Facebook page to get our daily postings today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broke Markle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.